If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to John chapter 5? John chapter 5, this is our third sermon in this chapter, and we'll wrap things up today looking at verses 31 through 47. John 5, verses 31 through 47. Uh, Have you ever had to prove that you are who you say you are? Maybe the, the thing that comes to your mind is what comes to my mind, and it's when I have to go to the DMV. And I stand in line, and I'm usually holding lots of things to say that I am who I say I am. I've got at least my driver's license and maybe some other form of ID, and then a piece of mail that has my name and, and my address on it. And then, you know, you finally arrive at the window, and you give all this information, and they say, nah, not enough. We don't know that you really are who you say that you are. Proving who you are can sometimes be a lot harder than you think it should be. Uh, No matter what evidence you provide, it can feel like uh, that your case is a little bit flimsy. As John in his gospel is seeking to tell us who Jesus is, there are some people who refuse to believe in him. Uh, There is a focus in this passage then on witnesses. Witnesses to who Jesus was and is those who can prove his identity. And yet, and yet there also seems to be an even greater focus on the way that those who heard Jesus rejected those great witnesses and thereby rejected Jesus. They had solid evidence to see him for who he said he was. And yet they resisted. They refused to believe the testimony about who he was. So they never believed in him and they never found life through him. So this teaching today, in many ways, comes to us as a warning, and this is the warning that we hear from God's word. Don't reject the clear witnesses to the authority of the Son. Don't reject the clear witnesses to the authority of the Son. Again, the emphasis could be, and when I first read this, I said, oh, it's all about the witnesses to Jesus. And yet, interwoven in that is this theme of rejecting those witnesses, no matter how great they might be. And in that, these verses help us to see how unbelief works. They reveal why people would not receive Jesus then and why people don't receive him now. And they also spell out the danger for us of falling into the kind of unbelief that would deny Christ. As with all of Jesus' words, these statements lay us bare. They expose our hearts. And while we could read this passage and spend time marveling at the unbelief of the Pharisees, oh, I can't believe they didn't listen to Jesus and these witnesses, I think we would be better served to ask ourselves how we too are tempted to reject the clear witnesses to the authority of the Son and why those around us would do the same. So again, God's word says to us today, don't reject, don't reject the clear witnesses to the authority of the Son. We're going to read John 5, 31 through 47. You'll remember that this chapter opened with the healing of a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, after which Jesus spoke of the unique relationship that he and the Father had and the fact that he had been given authority to give life and to bring judgment. And so here we find witnesses that attest to the fact that Jesus truly had that authority that he claimed to have. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Don't reject the clear witnesses to the authority of the Son. Notice first the the unified witness of the Father and the Son in verses 31 and 32. The unified witness of the Father and the Son. This passage begins with a kind of surprising statement in verse 31. Jesus says that if he testifies about himself, then his testimony is not true. Now, of course, Jesus did testify about himself. And so the question is, is everything that Jesus said about himself a lie? No, that's not what he's saying here. I don't think that's the point. Part of the point seems to be the idea that if he is simply saying truth about himself with no one else to confirm it, then there's no way to know whether or not what he says is true. This is why a good case in court needs multiple witnesses. It needs a certain amount of evidence if it's going to be believed. Therefore, Jesus' testimony about himself is true, but for his words to be the only testimony regarding his enormous and audacious claims about himself, that's not enough. So therefore, Jesus is recognizing the need for witnesses. However, in the context, the focus seems to be a little different, and I I think the focus seems to be more on the joint witness of the Father and the Son, and the fact that his witness is always linked to the Father's, and the Father's witness is always linked to the Son's. Again, we're getting into the intricacies of the Trinity that have been talked about earlier in this passage. But Jesus says in verse 32 that there's someone else who bears witness to who he is. Who is this someone else? Well, I think we could connect it to John the Baptist in verse 33 and following, but it actually seems more likely that this other witness 
is the Father. God the Father testifies to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And then he does that through three witnesses that come from him, but also come from the Son. Those witnesses are John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and the scriptures, which we'll look at. But all of these witnesses flow from the united witness of the Father and the Son together. Again, notice the continued depth of relationship between the Father and the Son that's being communicated in this passage. Jesus says of the Father's testimony that he knows that the Father's testimony is true. We saw last week that Jesus knows the will of the Father and perfectly follows it. So he also knows the testimony of the Father and he fully attests to the truth of it. The testimony of the Father is separated from Jesus' own testimony and yet there's also a union between them. As Jesus has said, he does nothing by himself so even his testimony is done with the Father or through the Father. I'm not sure I fully understand everything I just said. (laughs) But there's a depth here in the relationship between the Father and the Son where they testify together, and Jesus is emphasizing that unity. So having emphasized again that unity, how do the Father and the Son witness together to the Son's authority to make the claims that he does? As we've already said, there are three witnesses that they then present to the world and to us, and the first is the witness of John the Baptist. The witness of John the Baptist. This is in verses 33 through 35. And in verse 33, it seems to be a reference back to what we read in in John 1, 19 through 28, where the the priests and the Levites sent a delegation to ask John who he was. And you remember that in that moment, John witnessed to the fact that he was not the Messiah, but he was the one sent before the Messiah to prepare the way for his arrival. Then the next day, he announced that Jesus was the one that he had been sent before, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who will baptize all of God's children with the Holy Spirit. Jesus indicates in verse 35 that there were some in those days who were willing to accept John's witness. They saw that John was not the light of John 1.8, the true light, but they accepted him as a, a brightly burning lamp that was lighting the way for the true light's arrival. And yet, that belief was just for a time. They soon moved from rejoicing in John's light to rejecting it. They were all caught up in the expectation of the Messiah's arrival, along with the crowds that went to see John. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, and John said, that's the one we're looking for, their joy and their belief faded away. Jesus didn't look or act like they expected him to, and so they moved from curiosity and rejoicing into persecution and even a desire to kill Christ. So Jesus here is calling them back to that acceptance of John's testimony. He's asking that they would again rejoice in what John was saying, and not just in John as the lamp, but they would, they would rejoice in him as the light of the world. As we think about John's place as a witness in our own lives, I think we could place him alongside the witness of the Old Testament prophets if we wanted to, but Jesus is going to talk about the scriptures as a witness to his authority a little bit later, so I think John might represent something a little bit different. Regarding John, Bruce Milne speaks of the role of human witnesses to the authority of Jesus, and I think that's what John may represent, human witnesses to the authority 
of Jesus. We might first see a parallel to preachers of the gospel, but there's also a role of proclaiming who Jesus is that every child of, the, of God has. We are to bear witness by the power of God and through his indwelling spirit to the truth of who Jesus is and the hope of salvation that he offers. We are human witnesses to who Jesus is. If John was a lamp, then so are we, according to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you are in Christ, you are to shine like a lamp, like John did. In your good works, in your gospel-centered words, all of which attest to the authority and the power of Jesus to save. Now, we looked at verse 33 and verse, 30, and verse 35, but we skipped over 34. So, regarding verse 34, Jesus is, is clear that he personally does not need the witness of John the Baptist. I was listening to a, a sermon by R.C. Sproul where he referenced the old saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard that? Okay. Sproul went on to say how prideful of a statement that is because he said, if God said it in his word, that settles it, period, whether I believe it or not. And Jesus is saying here that he doesn't need human testimony for his claims to be true or for he himself to believe them. If he and the Father testify that he is the Savior, that settles it, regardless of any human testimony. John is good, but he's not necessary for Jesus. And yet, while human testimony was not for the benefit of Jesus, it was and it remains a means that God uses to call people to faith in him. Jesus even says here that the reason he highlights John's testimony is because he wants people to, be, to, be, to believe and be saved. Look at verse 34. He says there, not that the testimony that I receive is from him, but I say these things, why? So that you may be saved. So you and I, if we are followers of Christ, while we are not John the Baptist, we are like him. We are filled with God's spirit. We are given God's word. We are lamps shining forth in the darkness of our world, in our workplaces, of our schools, our social circles, our homes, and our cities. And as the Father and the Son work together, God invites we are who, who are his children to witness to the authority and the deity of Jesus to all who will hear us, which is a privilege we should always be ready to exercise. But we should be aware that it's one we, that, that we should expect to be rejected as we witness. That's what we see here. John the Baptist, one of the greatest of the prophets, was believed just for a moment and then rejected. And so too, our witness may often be dismissed. But the denial of the truth does not change its reality. And so we must to continue to testify as all the prophets throughout history have, regardless of whether the world loves or hates our message. Well, from the witness of John the Baptist, what we might call human testimony, we move to the witness of the works that Jesus does. The witness of the works 
that Jesus does. We see this in verses 36 to 39. Jesus says that the works he does are actually an even greater witness to his divine identity and authority than John the Baptist. That's because they are from the Father. We again see that Jesus does nothing of his own because these works are given by the Father. All the signs that Jesus performed, including the healing of the paralyzed man on the Sabbath at the beginning of this chapter, were given to Jesus by the Father with the purpose of bearing witness to the fact that Jesus had been sent by the Father. Verse 37 seems, again, to highlight this joint witness as well. Uh, This verse where it talks about hearing the voice of God, it it could be an allusion to when God spoke at the baptism of Jesus or even to all these other instances where we see God specifically speaking from heaven, always to confirm that Jesus was his beloved son. And yet the focus is probably broader, and here it seems to be linked to the works that Jesus did. We might move even beyond the signs that John records and see here all of the works that Jesus did, including his resurrection and his ascension, that these were the witness of the Father through the life of Jesus. The Father was witnessing to Jesus' authority and sonship through the works that he did. Everything about Jesus spoke of the witness of the Father to his deity. As we think about that, I wonder if we might extend this to the works that Jesus does through his church and think about how they function. What is the purpose of the good works that the church does or even that you as an individual Christian do? These are often not miraculous signs like Jesus performed, though God may choose to work in such a way. However, our acts of love and service to others can be shown, according to John 3.21, to have been carried out in God. They've been laid out before us, Ephesians 2.10. Therefore, these good deeds are not actually ends in and of themselves, but like the works of Jesus, they are a means of witnessing to the fact that Jesus has come to save souls. This is a reminder that the ministry of the church is not good deeds for the sake of good deeds, but rather good deeds as witnesses to the truth of the gospel and good deeds done as a means of calling others to reckon with Jesus as the one who gives life and brings judgment. We should not be ashamed of this fact. The fact that the good deeds we do are meant, they have a deeper purpose than just being a good deed. That they are done to show forth the power of Jesus. On the other hand, we should be careful that we're not doing good deeds or good works or other ministry as some sort of veiled bait and switch. Rather, we should, always be, we should always be striving to be as clear as possible that the fact that we do good deeds as an individual or as a church is because Jesus has transformed us and that we are doing them so that people might see our good works and be transformed as well. That's the purpose. We don't need to hide that fact. And we don't need to worry that our good deeds are some sort of bait and switch or that we are not um, being truthful in the fact that we're doing these to show forth who God is and to call people to faith in him. Well, we find in verses 37 and 38 that the hearts of the Pharisees resisted the witness of Jesus' signs. We've seen this in John's gospel already. And we know that we all resist 
Jesus' signs, and in rejecting him, the Pharisees missed the opportunity, we're told, to, to hear God's word, to see his form, and to find his word abiding in them. Do you see that rebuke? It's, it's strong. Middle of verse 37, Jesus says, His voice you have not heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abided in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. In not believing in Jesus, they missed all of those opportunities. Why? Well, because that was the, the ministry of Jesus. Remember who Jesus is, John chapter 1. He is the word made flesh. He is the word of God. He is the exact representation of God. John 1.18 says that while no one has ever seen God, Jesus has made him known. And as we'll see later, to abide in Jesus is to have Jesus and his word abide in us. And so, in rejecting the witness of the signs of Jesus, the Pharisees and all who reject Christ missed the opportunity to hear from God himself, to see his very form and to have his word abiding in us. Now, the mention of, of God's word here leads into the third witness to the authority of Jesus, and that's the witness of the scriptures. The witness of the scriptures. Now, for, for Jesus to say that the Pharisees did not have God's word abiding them, in them is shocking. It'd be like me saying, Trevor and Joshua don't know anything about computers. <laughs> or Jude and, and Judah and Carter, they know nothing about Pokemon. Or Jake knows nothing about carpet. Or Ken knows nothing about conveyor belts. Or... Um, who else was I going to? Someone's not here. Sarah Elizabeth doesn't know how to teach English to people who, have no, who don't speak English. You know, something that you do well, and someone says you know nothing about that. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, who were considered experts in the Scriptures, God's word is not abiding in you. The, the Pharisees studied the Scriptures constantly. Jesus is, therefore is not offering this rebuke to people on the streets who have no interest in God's word. He's saying it to the ones who seem to love the scriptures more than anyone else. He's saying to them that God's word does not abide in them. Now, for we who love the scriptures and who study the scriptures, that's a sobering rebuke that we should think about. We need to ask our own hearts, if, if we who are familiar with God's word, could, could we just be familiar with it and actually not have his word abiding in us? And how could that be possible? For the Pharisees, we're going to kind of drill down into this, but on the surface, the issue seems to have been, first, a, a misuse of the Scriptures. They were misusing the Scriptures. Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures. Now, why do they search the Scriptures? You search the Scriptures to find out what you need to do to gain eternal life. In other words, the Pharisees were seeing the Scriptures as a list of laws to be done to gain eternal life. They saw the Scriptures, if you might envision it, as a ladder, a ladder that would lead them to God. But instead, what they should have seen was a set of train tracks that was meant to lead them to Christ. So Jesus says, you find in the Scriptures a, a way to earn salvation. That's what you find. Because that's what you're looking for. When in fact, the scriptures are pointing to me. 
And they're showing you that it's only through faith in me that you can find salvation. And so we find that that the danger the Pharisees represent is a kind of knowledge of Scripture that leads to seeking to earn our salvation rather than seeking Jesus. If we dig a little bit deeper, we find that at the root of that approach is pride. What's the issue with the Pharisees? It's a misuse of Scripture, but a little bit deeper, it's, it's pride. And I think that pride becomes clear in Jesus' rebuke of their unbelief in verses 41 to 44. I think there's a pattern here where the witness is talked about and then the rebuke is stated with each of these witnesses, but the rebuke gets longer and longer. And here we've got it from verses 41 almost all the way to the end. Here Jesus speaks of seeking glory from others and he says that at the root of their unbelief is a desire for their own glory and not the glory of God. And this desire for praise and for commendation, for personal glory because of our personal achievements is present in every human heart, yours and mine included. The reason that we and so many other religions read the scriptures and find in them a set of rules to keep in order to earn favor with God is because we all naturally desire to save ourselves for our own glory rather than let Jesus save us for his glory. And this pride is at the root of why the Pharisees reject Jesus and why so many people still reject him. It's why they will accept him as a good person or a moral teacher, but refuse to say that he is God. The way Jesus says that is, if I came in my own name, you would have accepted me. What an interesting statement from Jesus. If I would have come in my own name, you would have accepted me. If Jesus had come seeking glory from men and women like we all naturally want to do, then he would not have exposed the sinfulness of men and women, and he would have been accepted by them. If Jesus came concerned about the praises of people, well, he would have changed his whole ministry approach. We just think about this instance in, in In chapter 5, he would not have performed a miracle on the Sabbath. Why? Because he's concerned about the praises of people. He would have performed not just one miracle, he would have healed everyone there at the pool of Bethesda. Why? Because he's concerned about the praises of people. He would have spoken in a way that exalted himself and made people want to be like him. Why? So that they too could be praised. If he came seeking the praises of others, then people would say, hey, this guy is just like us. So maybe we can be just like him. Maybe we can get the praises of others as well. He's seeking the same thing we are. I think that's how all false teachers and deceptive leaders show up, isn't it? They show up seeking a name for themselves. And therefore, it makes perfect sense for them to deny the deity of Jesus. Why? Well, if Jesus is God, I can't be equal with him. But if I can deny his deity, then suddenly I can be just like him. It makes perfect sense that they would promote their own name because then we wonder if maybe we too could be exalted along with them. There's an ugly form of deception that's a part of false teachers as well as celebrity pastors and even political figures. But that deception works. Why? It works because it taps into our sinful desire for the praises of people because that's what we want. And so when they're doing it, We start following them as well. 
And then Jesus comes along. (laughs) Jesus comes along, according to Paul in Philippians 2, as the only one who could rightly demand praises. He's the only one that could come and say, worship me. But then he doesn't. Instead, he humbles himself. He comes not in his own name, but he he comes in his Father's name. He comes to reveal to us that our lives are not about us, but they're about the glory of God. That our salvation is not rooted in who we are and what we do, but in who Jesus is and what he has done. The gospel of Jesus decimates human pride. There is zero room for any human pride in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It causes us to say things like, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And if we have ears to hear it and we respond, we, we, we respond to Christ with repentance and faith, then we are born again. We are made completely new such that the focus of our lives changes and we're no longer about our own name, our own exaltation, but we're about the exaltation of Jesus. And in, doing, in, in, in being about that, we follow in the footsteps of Christ who sought to bring glory to his Father in heaven. And so we too take our lives and we push down this pride constantly that seeks our own name and we say, no, I want to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He humbled himself and exalted his Father. He didn't come in his own name. He came in his Father's name and that's how I want to live. It changes how we live, but again, part of the issue was how the Pharisees were reading the scriptures and I think it changes how we read the scriptures such that we, we see in them, again, not a ladder to God, but train tracks to Christ. Jesus' strongest rebuke for the Pharisees who were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures is when he says that Moses is the one who accuses them. He says, you don't even know how to read the words of Moses correctly. Can you imagine? You don't know how to read Moses. Because if you did, you'd see that Moses was talking about me. As Jesus is going to do on the road to Emmaus, he's helping us to see that all of the scriptures are pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones says it, every story whispers his name. This all reminds us of the, the power of the scriptures. And it helps us to see that something very practical, which is that translating the Bible into the heart languages of nations and distributing the scriptures into hard to reach places is good and right and world-changing work. Why? Because God's word, word transforms people. And so we need to support efforts to get the scriptures into the hands of all peoples. But the Pharisees also help us to see that we can have the scriptures and we can still read them through the lens of our human pride. We can look at the scriptures and read them in such a way that we hear them saying to us what our prideful hearts want them to say rather than what they truly say. So we see not only the need of having the scriptures in our hands, but also of rightly reading the scriptures, of letting them say what they are intended to say, not what we want them to say. This is why we're walking through the Gospel of John the way that we are, and why the regular preaching diet of our church is studying through books of the Bible. Why? Because it means that we are submitting ourselves to the Word of God and seeking to understand its message clearly without our own opinions and proclivities and frameworks muddying the waters. Maybe this is 
standing out to me because this is the last Sunday that I'll be preaching for a couple weeks before I head to the Philippines. And in light of that, I'm reminded why we as a church make that kind of work a priority. Why do we invest ourselves in helping pastors and church leaders know how to read and understand and teach and preach the scriptures? Because God's word, rightly understood, is life-changing and it's of eternal value. And because God's word misunderstood leads to death. The Pharisees did not understand God's word and they missed Jesus. They had the scriptures that spoke about him. They studied them more than anyone else and they missed him. Now there could be a pride in that, couldn't there? There could be a pride that says, we're gonna go tell people how to read the Bible because we know how. (laughs) Know that these efforts, it's not us arriving to say, listen to us, watch us rightly to interpret the scriptures. In the same way that I hope that this preaching is not me saying, everybody come and listen to me tell you how to rightly interpret the scriptures. We'd be no better than the Pharisees if that was our attitude. Instead, as we gather, we, we gather together around the scriptures. We allow the word of God to be our teacher. We learn from from one another. We lay down our pride-soaked frameworks and we together submit to the scriptures and trust that the word of God does the work of God and that the work of God is transforming lives in such a way that we would live for his glory and seek always to do his will. Reading the scriptures then is a powerful thing. Whether you do it on your own whether you come and sit underneath the preaching of God's word, whether we gather after potluck and discuss it, whether you go to the Philippines and teach pastors how to to read and understand it and preach it, the word of God is powerful and life-transforming, and it's a serious business to know how to read it well by the power of God's spirit working through us. We must be careful. We must value the scriptures, but also be careful that, that we're not those that know them but have not allowed the truth of them to really penetrate our hearts because of our pride. So we see all these witnesses and we're reminded that God in Christ has come. Why? So that we might know who he is and that in believing in him, we would have life in his name. And what a gift that Christ has has made it clear exactly who he is. The Father and the Son together have attested to it. And how have they done it? They've done it through John the Baptist, through human witnesses to who he is. They've done it through the works of God in his world. And they've done it through the scriptures that are given to us. All of these witnesses come together and they call us to lay down the pride that would reject Jesus and choose to seek glory from others. They attest to the truth that Jesus has authority to give life and to judge all people. And so there's some questions. That Jesus ends with the questions. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, an emphasis on the words of Jesus. Will we believe his words? Will we repent and believe in him as the Savior of the world? Will we believe his words? Will we listen to this rebuke today? Don't reject the clear witness to the authority of the Son. Instead, believe in him and find life in his name. Let's take a moment of silence and allow God's Spirit to apply his word to our hearts, and then I will pray for us.
Father, we thank you that you have broken through our pride. Apart from you and apart from the work of your spirit, we would continue to reject the truth of who Jesus is. We would be blind to the salvation that you offer us in him. But you've given us witnesses, some that we read about in the scriptures and then others who you brought into our lives, into our story, whether it be parents or friends or Sunday school teachers or strangers that we've since forgotten. People have come and testified to the truth of who you are. And you invite us to do the same. Help us to be faithful, human witnesses to who you are. Lord, you've shown us wonderful works in your scriptures through these signs and miracles, but even in our world and in our own lives, you've testify to your greatness and to your power through the works that you do all around us. And you've given us the scriptures, Lord. What a gift that we can open them up and we can see Jesus here. We can witness him and we can find life in his name. Lord, we pray that we would not reject these witnesses, but that we would be affirmed once again about the truth of who you are and that we would allow your word to continue to Go deep into our hearts and transform us so that we are not those that are seeking to receive glory from people, but we are those who are seeking to give all glory and honor and praise to you and you alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.